The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good evening. It's good to be with you. You know, I um, just want to say this personally. Those songs that we sung just are just really just so centered on the gospel and just are such good tr- timeless truths to remind ourselves of the work of Christ through song. And, you know, if you know anything about songs, of course you do. You know, you turn on your radio and you can listen to it. If you know anything about music, you know, they are like a portable memory tank. They really are. And whether you turn on a song and we're on the radio and it's a song you remember that you were dating your wife with, or a song you remember the, the first time y'all danced, or whatever the case may be, it, it takes you always back to uh, a memory of some sort. And I don't know about you, but every one of those songs really just hit the nail on the head to be reminded of the glorious truth of who Jesus is and his glorious work on, on the cross and his resurrection. And that's why we take, we take heart here, as Jake has extolled us many times and as well as Grant has, that's why we, we really center deep on what we sing, because what we sing very much is an echo of what you believe. And that's why we take serious the songs we choose every single Sunday here at Capitol. Well, if you have your Bible, turn over to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. And tonight, we are going to land the plane. I know some of you may be ready for it uh, in the book of Zephaniah. Or you keep saying, Kenny, give me more. I think that's what you're probably saying. And, um, but anyway, but we are closing out our time in the book of Zephaniah. And whether you have been with us in person or maybe you've been catching us online or, or listening to one online, you know, we have been, over the last four Sundays, uh, we have been looking at this minor prophet's message that he has received from the Lord God himself, from Yahweh, to deliver to the people, to, to God's people, to deliver to Judah specifically. And it, Zephaniah does not hold anything back. His message, uh, his main message to bring to the people of God this day of the Lord, it's a two-sided message. Number one, as we have talked extensively about, it is to bring judgment on God's people. It's to bring judgment on God's people. We've seen him call out their false worship against these false idols, bowing the knee to even the, the stars in the skies. We've seen Zephaniah call out just corrupt leadership, He's called out the surrounding nations that that are bordering Judah that have mocked God's people, who have not only mocked God's people, but have mocked God himself. And so we've seen over and over again a repeated message that Zephaniah is saying, listen, because of this sin, because of sin in the camp of Judah, because of the sin in in the surrounding areas, God is bringing judgment. And he doesn't He's precise with his language. He doesn't mince words in his pronouncement of judgment upon these nations. And it's hard to read. And even I said this when we were going through Zephaniah chapter 2. You don't see a lot of people going through these minor prophets because it's not sometimes an, an, an easy sandwich to eat because it is a heavy message of judgment upon the sin of God's people. But then... The other side of the day of the Lord that we've been able to see, at least a little bit of a glimmer, a little bit of a flashlight in a dark room, is hope. That's the other side of the message of the day of the Lord, hope. And this hope is not anchored in any man-made philosophy or religion. This is nothing man-generated or centered on. This hope is from the Lord. And that's the other side that we see with this message of the day of the Lord that Zephaniah brings, hope. And we saw a glimmer of hope in, if you remember, in Zephaniah chapter 2, where he calls the people to repent. If you're going to seek the Lord, as it says in chapter 2, verse 3, if you're going to seek the Lord and do his just commands to seek righteousness and humility, then it's got to come through repentance. It's 
got to come through repentance. Seeking the old ways, seeking these false ways that, Je- that Zephaniah has called out, and going towards the things of God, the standard of righteousness that God has laid before us through his, through his word and through looking at the Lord himself, Yahweh himself. And so that's the two-sided message that we see um, in, in the book of Zephaniah. But tonight, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, the entire chapter 3, and the entirety of it. And tonight, what I want us to look at is we are going to spend a majority of our time looking at verses 9 through 20, and we're going to end on a message of hope. We're going to end on a message of hope, because that's how the prophet ends. That's where he lands the plane. And this hope that we are going to see is anchored in God himself. He is the author of it. It's through God alone that he gives it and, and, and offers it to the people. And tonight what we are going to see, and specifically 9 through 20, is four points this evening. We're going to see how the Lord gives the hope of a Savior. That's first point number one. Point number two is hope for the faithful. Hope for the faithful. For the, the faithful remnant that we've been able to see little glimpses of throughout our journey. Number three, we're going to see a hope that produces joy. And that's going to be in verses 14 through 17. And then our last point, the hope of God's restoration. The hope of God's restoration will be our fourth point as we look through 18 through 20. So tonight, what I want us to do is I'm going to read the verses. Instead of reading all 20 verses right now, I want us to be able to see the context of where we are that will go along with us in our points. And so what I'm going to do is read them along with our um, with our points this evening. But before we get started, before we move any further, we need to ask the Lord for his help and his guidance, and we need to do that through the means of prayer. So if you will, bow your heads with me and ask the Lord to bless our time together through his word. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the Lord today. Father, we, we begin and end, we bracket our days in worship. And this day, this Lord's day that you have set out for your people to come and to worship, I pray that in this evening hour, Lord, that you would teach us through your word. Father, I, I not only pray, pray for our, our time tonight as we're looking at Zephaniah, I also pray for the other ministries that are taking place even now. I pray, Father, for Adventure Club. I pray for all those kids upstairs right now that they are going to be not only having fun, going to be able to see friends, but, Lord, they are going to be hearing the, the word of God. And I pray, Lord, for those kids to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I also pray for our students, our middle and high school students, Lord, I pray that as Grant's up there now, teaching and leading tonight, I pray, Father, that those kids will see the beauty and the rich riches of Christ. I pray, Father, that those kids will see the importance of your word, to see the importance of prayer, to see the importance of what a, what a life committed to Christ looks like. And I pray, Lord, that any of those students, I pray, Lord, they will come to faith in Christ. Lord, and I pray for those in the room, watching online, Lord, if there's someone here tonight wrestling in their heart, what does faith look like? Who is this Jesus? What is the gospel? What is salvation? What is hope? I pray, Lord, help them see Christ as Lord and Savior tonight. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's look at verses 3 through 8 tonight. 3 through 8 in chapter 3. Listen along with me in the word of God. <clears throat> Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning, He shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battalions are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me and you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. you. But all the more they are eager to make all their deeds 
corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, from the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. Let's look at this brief overview in verses 1 through 8. So the prophet zeroes in now on the city of Jerusalem. And what we see here is he, right as he has through these two previous chapters, he doesn't come out soft. He comes out with a hard landing going directly to the sin that is in the holy city of God, the city of Jerusalem. And what are they guilty of? They are guilty before Yahweh himself of oppression, rebelliousness, defiling the law, and pride, which is no correction. And they don't trust, and they do not draw near the Lord. What we see here is before this, in the city of Jerusalem, sin that is so egregious that God is saying to you, woe. And in these, these woe judgments we have seen all throughout, of course, in the Old Testament, but of course we see them even in the New Testament. And when you see a woe, you always need to see judgment that is coming right behind it. And this judgment is coming forth that we see here is that Jerusalem, the holy city, God's shining city that we see here is supposed to be a, a, a pillar of, moral, of people who are walking moral, morally, who are walking in the righteousness of God. Here we see them turning their back on the Lord. And to sum it up what they're doing, they don't trust in the Lord and they do not draw near to him. That's what we see in verse they do exact opposite of what they are commanded to live. They are called to be people who love the Lord their God with all their heart and their soul and their might to worship, to bring sacrifice and praise, faithful obedience. But what God sees is unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness in the city. And we even see not only does he address the individuals within the city of Jerusalem, he then moves in to leadership. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he does the same thing to the leadership within the, to the entire tribe of Judah. But here he calls out the four leaders that are called to be able to, be, to lead in the city of Jerusalem. The officials, the judges, the prophets, and the priests. These people, if you study the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, are not only supposed to guide the people in the right and wrong, but they're also supposed to guide the people spiritually to guide the people spiritually. To put it more in a modern-day vernacular, these would be pastors. If you see it on this side of the cross, these would be pastors. But they are guilty of not trusting in the Lord and not drawing near to God. And God, as we see here, <clears throat> does not take light the sin of this leadership. And I would be remiss not to say, just like we walked through in chapter 1, ladies and gentlemen, leadership matters. And how your leaders are, are going, where, where their compass is being led to, is going to affect people, whether we realize it or not. Leadership does matter, and godly leadership matters more importantly. And it doesn't take us long, and I'm not going to go into much detail, because we already did in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. But listen, we see leaders left and right, civic and spiritual leaders, crash and burn left and right. It doesn't take us long to flip over the news, to look on our phones, to look on social media, to see time and time again, especially spiritual leaders, walk away from the faith, deny the things of the Word of God over and over and over again. And sadly, I believe that we've become so numb to it that we see false teachers and, fa and pastors just lead people astray. And what we see here as they are leading people here in Zephaniah chapter 3 into the same shameless and sinful actions that we saw in chapter 2. People that have no shame of their sin, this is exactly what the leadership is guilty of. They have no shame for what they have led their people to. Just like Tanner last week walked us through the book of Hosea, what we see here is just unfaithfulness. And if you remember what Tanner walked through last week of walking through Hosea, he did a really good study of Hosea's wife, Gomer, who is compared to like a harlot, which is a picture of an unfaithful Israel. Is that a way you would want to be described? Unfaithful as a harlot. It's very shocking language. But that's, we, that's what we see with the egregious nature of this sin being listed here 
in verses 3 through 8. And then turn over a page, or maybe it might be right there in front of you. But there in verse 5, here is where the tone of Zephaniah changes. And the reason why I said the tone changes is because Zephaniah here, before we get into verses 9 through 20, this is where Zephaniah puts a stake in the stand. This is where he puts it in the ground to be able to hold up the righteousness of God before the people of Jerusalem. He says the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. He is holding high the righteousness of God that Jerusalem is supposed to uphold to. But what they have done is turn their back on God. So it's a comparison here. So we see in verses 1 through 4 this idea of unfaithfulness. And here in verse 5, right before we look through 6 through 8, the idea of judgment, there he is holding and putting a high stake in the ground for us to look vertical to see that the righteousness that we are supposed to hold to, the standard that we are supposed to look to, comes from the Lord himself. This is how we are supposed to live. Not by on our human efforts, not by these false prophets of Baal and astrology and these idolatrous priests that we saw in chapter 1. No, we are supposed to look to the Lord as our standard, the Lord to how we are supposed to live. Yet Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of God, has turned their back on the Lord. And then, of course, we look through 6 through 8. Zephaniah does not mince words. We have seen this language before. Judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. I have cut off nations. I have laid waste the streets. I have made cities desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. No dwelling should be cut off. Those are pretty striking words, aren't they? Very shocking words, but ones that are precise and ones that show the judgment, the punishment upon the city of Jerusalem. And if you know your church history, you do know that judgment came in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. So we do know this day the Lord is coming, and they cannot escape it. Which then, as we see here at the end of verse 8, judgment is come, but now the domino begins to fall. And this is where we're going to spend a majority of our time, like I said earlier, to give us an overview. So we've seen the judgment very briefly tonight. And what I want us to do now is turn our attention to the hope that God himself lays before the people of the surrounding nations, the remnant of Judah, and Israel themselves. It's hope that comes from God himself. And again, the domino that helps fall and to put this into motion starts in verse 5. It's because of the righteousness of God that he does no injustice. It is from God himself that puts into motion, as we will see here, this hope that people can hold on to and that people can possess. And this hope, with our first point, if you would like to write this down, how do we, how do we have it? How are we able to walk in this righteousness that verse 5 lays before us? It comes through the hope of a Savior, the hope of of a Savior. And this is what we find ourselves in verses 9 through 10. Listen along with me in the, in the Word of God. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So Zephaniah here in verses 9 through 10, is holding up exactly what God is going to do, and he is giving them this hope, and it's coming through the salvation. And what he is showing us here in verses 9 through 10 is salvation is going to be coming to the surrounding Gentile nations. The Gentile nations, they are going to be able to um, be a part of this hope that the Yahweh himself is going to extend through salvation. Salvation is coming. And what does this look like? First, we see it, this idea of a pure speech. Purification is going to take place. Now, this idea of pure speech, or this speech that's going to change, change 
may sound foreign to our ears because we don't necessarily use this language a lot when we see this idea of conversion or this hope that is coming through the means of salvation. But what it means is that this pure speech means a purifying of the heart. That's what we see here. That's what's going to take place in the life of these Gentile nations. These lips are going to be changed into pure speech. Their, their heart is going to be purified by the Spirit of God. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. We see this idea of pure speech always being attributed to true saving faith and being purified by God himself or by, by the Spirit of the Lord. And we'll get into more detail here in a moment with this purification. But this idea of pure speech, I think we can see this probably one of the more famous examples is in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember when Isaiah goes before and sees, and he's in the Holy of Holies and sees the Lord? He says in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken his tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched my li- your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. We see this also in Job 33.30. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know they speak with sincerity. So pure speech is a pure heart. Pure speech is a pure heart. And those with a pure heart are then able to do what God desires for his people. And this is in verse 9. So they shall call upon the name of the Lord. And only the Lord can do this. Only the Lord himself can give this changing of speech, this, this purification of the heart. And what is taking place here and what we see is that the Spirit of God is excuse me, coming upon these people, these Gentile nations, and regenerating them heart, their heart and giving them the ability to believe. Regenerating and then giving them the faith to believe. Regeneration always precedes faith. That is a key element of the Reformation. This is what we see taking place here in verse 9. And only the Lord can do this. And how does this come about? Repentance. Like we saw in chapter 2, repentance and trust in the Lord. He has drawn the people to, them, to himself, and they are to confess their sin and to now believe in the Lord himself. But here's something that we have to acknowledge. Sin is acknowledged. Sin is acknowledged here. This pure speech does not come just by, by the Lord extending a good favor. Hey, you seem like a good lot. Let me... Let me do you a favor and just change your speech. No. We see sin having to be reckoned with. And the connection we see here from verse 9 goes back to chapter 2 with the element of repentance. It's easy for us to see, as God is a, who is a covenant-keeping God, it's easy for us to say, well, well since he is a covenant-keeping God, can he? of course he's going to save him. But every single time, every single time, even though God is is a covenant-keeping God, and he, he does save his faithful ones. He does save his remnant of people. You never see him just push over sin. You never see him sweep it underneath the rug. Why did the people of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years? What was happening? Sin. Disobedience. They weren't ready to go to the promised land. And God, through that wand- those wandering years, had to bring discipline and judgment upon his own chosen people. And in order for them to be of pure speech, it has to be connected with the people who are going to seek the Lord. And how do you seek the Lord? As we saw beautifully in chapter 2, verse 3, it's got to come through repentance, acknowledging your sin before the Lord himself. It's not swept underneath the rug. It's a true confession of sin that take place. And then we see a pure speech, a change of speech taking place. And this is what we see the beauty here in the message. Even on this side of the cross, we see that all that call upon in the name of the Lord. This should probably ring true to our ears, doesn't it? Even with the New Testament connection here. If you turn in your Bible, if you'd like to Joel 32, you would see in Joel 32, chapter 2, verse 32, excuse me, 
that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see this even if you'd like to turn over in your Bible to Acts 2.21. This verse, of course, is quoted again. And then at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And then, of course, we see it probably one of the more famous passages is in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is what it's about. True saving faith. This is what the prophet is laying out for us here in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. True saving faith. By pouring out of the Holy Spirit, a change of heart, a change of a speech takes place. And through the regeneration of a heart that comes from the Lord himself, then we see that they are able to serve him with one accord. Some of you may have the New American Standard, which says shoulder to shoulder. I like that. I like that. To stand shoulder to shoulder. And what does it mean there to be of one accord and to stand shoulder and shoulder? What does that mean? It means true, genuine obedience. True, genuine faithfulness to God's here in this context of his law. To have faith in the Lord. That's what we see here, standing shoulder to shoulder. Genuine faith. Genuine obedience. And they are always anchored together. One cannot be absent from the other. And you have to understand that. We were even talking in our life class earlier today that it's easy for us when we present the gospel. Everybody loves to hear the salvation part. They love to have the Savior part. But what people have a hard time coming to grips with is the Lordship part. You cannot accept Jesus just as Jesus. We have to accept him as Jesus' Savior and what? Lord. The two go hand in hand, and we have to see that. I told you a couple of weeks ago, I remember sharing the gospel. Grant and I were at a restaurant sharing the gospel with the waiter. And when we got to this Lord part, he bolted. Mainly because I think it was Grant, okay? And, and just kidding, just kidding. Don't, don't worry, just a joke, just a joke. If you're new here, I like a joke. Usually people don't laugh. Um, so that's a shock to me to hear laughter. Um, see the hope of the goodness of Christ right here. People are laughing. Um, but it did. I'm being serious. When we got to that part, the man didn't like that. And I remember what he said. He said, this words I've heard before. You mean I have to be obedient? Yes, you do. And that's what we see here with this idea of serving him with one accord. And this one accord in verse 10 goes to the surrounding nations there. That's what it means in verse 10 by the rivers of Cush. This idea that we see here is going beyond into the depths of Africa, which would be modern-day Ethiopia which is not in, of course, the territory of Judah. So again, it's a picture of the Gentile nations. But here's what I want us to see here in this first point. It is for us to see the application of this hope of a Savior. This hope is anchored in salvation. And this is what God himself gives to the people. After hearing judgment after judgment, and being sin being just dealt with over and over and over again, don't you think this would be such sweet news to the people of Jerusalem? Seriously. Even when we looked at, very briefly, this idea of language being cut off, to be cut off from the Lord, could you imagine hearing that from the Lord himself, that you were cut off from my presence? That brings significant attention to our hearts and our end, as well as to our ears. But when you come to verse 9 and 10 and you see the hope that is extended to us, this hope also should, not, should also see within us, that extended to us by God himself, it should never leave us dormant. This hope that is anchored in Christ, that is anchored in the Lord that he has given to us, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that we have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hope does ne never leaves us in a state of just being still and quiet. Hope leads us to, to grow deeper in our faith and our walk with the Lord, for us to be faithful to the call of Christ. And if you look in Hebrews chapter 6, you see the example of this idea of hope and faith, and it's with the connection always to Abraham. Abraham, the example of faithfulness, as we look over and over and over again in the Old Testament 
and into the new. Abraham, who despite all odds, trusted in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Believed in the Lord. Faith in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And here's the other element as well. This hope that doesn't leave us dormant. This hope that is alive in the living Savior should also be able to give us great confidence in times of hardship and suffering. Should always give us hope and and suffering and hardship. Psalm 42 that Grant read this morning is one that I have read many times to myself and when I have been with people who are going through a season of hardship. But he, and this is why I said this hope never leads us dormant. Psalm 42, verse 5, as we heard this morning, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you a turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So there's activity behind the hope. Verse 11, why are you cast down? Again, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43, verse Five, why are you cast down again? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Three times, over and over and over again, hope in God. And all of us in here, because we either we live in a fallen world or we're just going to feel it itself because we know suffering is going to come, I pray that the hope of a Savior will be able to bring great peace to you, especially when you're going through hardship and suffering. Because a lot of times it is this hope in who the Lord is as we've seen already in verses 9 through 10, that's what gets us through. That's what gets us through. Let's look then to our second point. Hope for the faithful. Hope for the faithful. So we see already the hope of a Savior, hoping in the Lord even through the hard times. And this is what exactly what the people have done, hoping through the hard times, the remnant that we have heard about and as in verses 11 through 13, this remnant who are the faithful followers of Yahweh, the faithful followers of the Lord God. Even though punishment is coming, judgment is coming upon the, peop- the tribe of Judah, and how specifically now, as we've seen in Jerusalem, they are continuing to be faithful to the Lord. And what we see here in verses 11 through 13, we see that through their faithful obedience to Yahweh, they are going to be people who, do, who will never be put to shame there in verses, verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove in your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave you in your midst, a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel." And they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The removal of shame. We've seen this already three times in the book of Zephaniah. We've seen this with how, shame, how the people are shameless to their sin. They don't turn pink when they are in sin. They don't feel guilty of it. They have no shame, as we saw in Chapter 2, and we saw just a few moments ago, of they have no shame from the leadership. But this shame that we see here in verse 11 is not going to be known from this faithful followers, this, this remnant that is left. And this remnant, of course, as we saw in verse 12, is not only in the tribe of Judah, but we also see it with the remnant of Israel, who they are already into captivity at this time. But they are, they are the, the ones who are the faithful followers. And this removal of the shame is twofold. Number one, it's the removal of the shame now through the remediation of a guilty conscience, through a pure heart, through a cleansing of pure speech, true saving faith. The other element that we see is through the one day that when there will be sin no more and the final consummation of the kingdom. That's what we see here, the removal of shame that Zephaniah is referring to. We even see this idea of no shame being in the midst of God's people in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Paul writes, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, shall not be put to shame. So this is what is described 
of these faithful followers. And then as we see in the second half of verse 11, pride will be removed. They shall no longer be haughty in the holy mountain. And then in, look what's verse in verse 12. Look what's just described of these faithful followers. Humble and lowly, and they seek the refuge in the name of the Lord. If you haven't read your Bible very long, or even if you've been a faithful follower of, of the Word, humility is always known with the believer. We're never to be proud. We're never to be people who are, who are to be haughty in, others, in other people's eyes. It's not to be known among us. Charles Spurgeon said humility is the proper estimate of oneself. And why is that? He says, because we know that we are poor in spirit, and we know apart from Christ, we are nothing. Don't you love that? And that makes us humble. That makes us bow our knees every single day before the Lord God himself and know that everything we have is a mercy. Everything we have is a mercy. And because of God extending his, his faithfulness to these people, and even to us this day, to the church, what we see in verse 3 should not even be named among us. Then and now. And Zephaniah, of course, always has a, a now and later perspective and, 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 and point to bring as he's done throughout this, this then and now. Because what we also see is, again, that one day final consummation. But what we also see in verse 13 is that this should be not be named among the, the faithful remnant now. And what's being described here? They're not going to speak lies. No deceit should be in their mouth. They, will do, they shall not do injustice. This is what is described of the people, the faithful remnant. And the question is, just like Zephaniah is calling out, can this be seen today in your own life? Serious question. Because we are the church. We're faithful followers of Christ. We're Christians. We represent Christ. Everywhere we go, we represent Christ. And the real question we have to come to grips with is, can this be named among us? Flip over in your Bible to Jeremiah. That's to your left. Jeremiah chapter 9. Let's, let's look here this idea of speaking no lies. Chapter 9, starting in verse 2. All that I had in the desert, a traveler's longing place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. Now, wouldn't you like to hear that being described of you? <laughs> Man, the weeping prophet does not mince words like his contemporary Zephaniah. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and, tr and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver. And every neighbor has gone about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. And no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, verse 7, says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. And, his mouth is, and, and with his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. You can turn back over to Zephaniah pretty strong words from the prophet Jeremiah. But as you were listening to those words, can that be described of you? Words matter. And as we know in Matthew chapter 7, out of the mouth the heart speaks. It shows what we believe. It shows what our heart is abiding in. And what we say to one another and how we treat one another with our words matters, not only to our fellow brother and sister, but most importantly to the Lord. Words matter. God has put language as an important piece for us to hear about his righteousness, the proclamation of the word, but also he has used words as we can read here today. 
to be used as a tool to point us to holiness, to point us to, again, the righteousness of God that we saw in verse 5. The NASB says deceit. Jeremiah, again, in chapter 8 says, Why then is the people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Words matter, ladies and gentlemen. And though we love to hear the tale of the gossip train, though we love to be a part of, did you hear what happened here? I would warn you now, as we've seen, being, having a deceitful tongue and being a liar, because that's what the devil constantly speaks is lies, does not need to be made to known, to be met, known among you, excuse me. And this is something you struggle with. Confess it now because it is sin. Because this cannot be known for people who are humbly and lowly and who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Liars never seek refuge. Liars always seek to protect themselves. And there's no perfect liar out there. Otherwise, they'd have a perfect memory. So be watchful with their words. Because look how we, the prophet ends in verse 13 of the blessings that the remnant are going to inherit. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The picture here is the Lord God being a shepherd to his people, leading his people back to a wonderful, green, prosperous land where they can graze and lie down and feast upon the mercies of the Lord. We saw this language again in chapter 2. We even saw it in chapter 1, where this idea of that the Lord as a shepherd brings peace, brings blessing to his people with the picture of a sheep to his shepherd. Micah 7.14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. And also, they shall not be afraid, free from fear. Leviticus 26, verse 6, picture the, helps us paint this picture of no fear in the land. I will give them peace in the land, and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove the harmful beast from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Jeremiah again, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from my and your offspring. Jacob, you shall return and have a quiet ease, and none shall make him afraid. Ladies and gentlemen, fear can easily grip us. And fear, a sinful fear, a phobia fear, as we see in Matthew chapter 6, an anxiety type of fear that makes us trust in mammon versus trusting in the Lord is sin. Anxiety is sin. And I know that's very hard to hear because what anxiety does is that it comforts us. We feel like we are in control. But what we see here as a faithful remnant, nothing is going to make us afraid. Nothing is going to make us afraid. And isn't that a glorious truth? Because fear, I feel like, pops up left and right. It's easy for us to just run and to hide it within ourselves and to be afraid and to be anxious about the future, to be anxious about big decisions or health or family or job or business or friend. But here, the faithful, they will not be afraid. And doesn't that give you a peace? Seriously, doesn't that give you a peace? That this peace only comes from the Lord himself. And again, I'd be remiss not to say this. Say to you, say to myself, is this known among you? Can this be named among you? That you're fearful, that you have a deceitful tongue. If you do, confess it now. Confess it before the Lord. And to see the beauty and the richness of that one day we will graze and lie down and be in a place of perpetual peace where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, all because of what the Lord gives and restores to his people. That is why the great hymn reminds us, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the hope that comes from the Savior. That's what hope that comes from the faithful. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're here tonight, you don't know what I'm talking about by being with the faithful. It's all through the power of Christ. It's all through Christ. And if you don't understand this Jesus, or maybe right now you're even wrestling in your heart, what is this eternal thing you're talking about? What is this hope you're talking about? I beg you with everything in the fiber of my being, come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. I'll be down front later. Come talk to me if you want to know more about this peace and this hope. Which then leads us to our third point, a hope that produces joy. Hope that produces joy. Hope that is realized always produces joy. I was recently watching a war movie. Many probably have seen it, the, the book, uh, excuse me, the, the movie 1917. I don't know if you've seen it before, but it's about World War I. And it's amazing, amazing movie. But the plot of, is pretty simple. There are two boys, two, I, I say boys, young guys, are given a, a message from the front lines to take to another commanding officer, and the order is, don't go into this specific battle. And if you see the, the flashbacks back and forth of this battle is being prepared, these soldiers that have not yet received the word not to go into battle are going into a death trap. It's a lose-lose situation. And when the story, of course, of these boys finally get to the battlefront and they hand over this news, what's amazing here is that when the commanding officer opens it up, he's, he's in shock. It's like he can't believe it because he knows what's behind him and in front of him. And so when he reads it, he even begins to question the authority of where did this letter come from. And when he realizes that it's true and that he even can see in the countenance of these two, just the, probably the lowest tier of, of the army, when he realizes from their countenance alone this is true, you can see joy come over this man. Joy, because he knows he's not leading his people into battle. And when you look in verses 14 through 17, this is exactly what happens when hope is realized, joy. We see language of singing aloud, rejoicing in verse 14. The Lord has taken away your judgments. The Lord your God is in your midst, and you should never again fear evil. Chapter 3 starts off similar to this idea of a war story. We see a woe, and now we are ending with shouts of joy and restoration. And it's a triad see, that we, of joy, singing aloud, shouting and rejoicing. And where does it all come from? From the Lord. From the Lord. And why do they have this response? It's because they have been saved from the wrath that is coming upon sin. They have true, genuine faith in Yahweh. For us, on this side of the cross, it's Christ. And that should well up within us this joy that sometimes is even hard to explain. And this, we see this idea of joy, the, the rightful response of joy that comes through a salvation all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 54, verse 1, Sing, O barren, barren one. Zechariah chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. You remember the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15? They're saved from the deliverance of, of just what seems, again, similar to the story of 1917, a lose-lose situation. And when they go through the Red Sea, chapter 15 is a song of Moses. All they do is extol the Lord. They lift up his attributes to see that who God who has saved and what we see here is a turn also in the language in verses 14 to 17 because we see very just personal language for this, these faithful. O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem. The reason why this language is so personal is because this would be familiar and it would go all the way back to the days of David when the Lord was significant in the activity and in, in the life of his people. You saw when you saw when you look back on David, what was he constantly doing? He sought the Lord over and over and over again. You see a constant seeking of the Lord from the time of David. And that's what we see this this, this very personal language here. And what does he do? 
He casts away judgment. He clears their enemy. And again, we see that they can fear no evil. Beautiful language here. And again, we can always point to the New Testament with each of these minor prophets. And we come to, especially with verse 15, this king of Israel. This is what is described here, especially with Jesus' triumphal entry in John chapter 12. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And we can see that connection within verse 15. I believe we also see it later in Matthew chapter 27. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. So this idea of kingship that we see there, that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord. Again, John 149, Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So again, I believe we can see even Zephaniah, that he's seeing through his prophetic word here, that there's going to be one who is coming to save, and that is the Messiah. And then, of course, we see in verse 17, some of the, I think some of the most beautiful words being poured out over the people of God. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. What an amazing word that the Lord God is singing over his people. You don't hear this a lot anymore. Think about that. Doesn't that humble you? To know the Lord is singing over you now. Of course, we know his love, God is love. First John 4, 8 reminds us of this. And by his love, we see it's quiet, makes us quiet, contemplative. That the silence is not a silence of, of, of being in anger that we saw in chapter, in verse, in chapter 1. This quietness is, is being contemplating the deep love that God has given his children. It's the same love that we saw that Jesus himself did when he, on his trial and as well as his crucifixion. O. Palmer Robertson, I believe, summarizes his best. For Jesus' silence and trial and his crucifixion was rooted in no other soil than the fertile depths of the love of God for sinners. Jesus' silence led him the opportunity to contemplate the specific objects of a sacrificing love. He delighted to do God's will as he presented his body, which had been prepared for sacrifice. His love for sinners was no less than the love of the fathers, and this is why he was quiet. Isn't that beautiful language? Sat there in silence. Which, this quieting of this love that God is rejoicing over us should give us two points of application. Number one, very briefly, that we should glorify God with our life. When you realize what we have been redeemed from, and when you realize also one of the blessings because of our redemption is that God is singing over us, we realize that we have been bought with a price. And that we also realize that every single day that we have breath is a mercy from God himself. And that we should not take it for granted. And that we should realize that everything we have is a gift of grace. And so in turn, we should glorify God with everything that we have. Every characteristic, our jobs, our families, everything should be to live for his glory. And then number two, it should give us the confidence in the day of trouble. Again, like we talked about with the application of the hope of the Savior. Hardship and suffering will come, but to know the love of God and that the love of the Lord is singing over us, that's why I believe we can have a peace that passes all understanding because we are contemplating the true deep love and the grace that has been extended to us all by the grace of God. And so it quiets us and gives us that confidence, like Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2 reminds us. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, you shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. and the flame, you shall not consume you.
Beautiful language, isn't it? Beautiful language of the hope. Which leads us to our fourth and final point, and I'll close with this very briefly, the hope of God's restoration. The hope of God's restoration. Verses 18 18 through 20, we see a tone here, and now God is speaking directly to his people. Over eight times we see in verses 18 through 20, I, first person. It's changing from third to first person, and God is speaking to his people. And what we see here is what he is going to bring them to do is because of his love, of his, of his redemption, he is able, they are able to then celebrate in festivals again. Think about the festival of the booths, the festival of harvest. Where they're able to come again and to celebrate all of God's blessing. So they're able to do this in their community. And then in verses 19 through 20, we see what the restoration is going to look at. The lame will be saved. He's going to gather those who are outcast. Again, shame we brought into praise and renowned through all, all the earth. He's going to gather them and he is going to restore to be a people who are to be praised and to restore their, for, their fortunes. Most importantly, notice, before the eyes of the Lord. Before your eyes and most importantly, before the eyes of the Lord. And Yahweh himself is going to do this. Yahweh himself is going to do this. They will be restored. So in closing, the prophet ends where he begins. It opens with judgment, with a cosmic upheaval, and a reversal of the created order, everything turned upside down, all because of sin, and now we see a complete 180. And now we see the prophet end on a crescendo, a crescendo of hope, hope for us today, hope for us today because of a realized faith in Jesus the Messiah, that we can realize this restoration now, all because of Christ, all because of Christ. And of course, just like Zephaniah has done over and over again, and the one day consummation of the kingdom. The one day we'll be with Christ forever. And so I want to leave. I want to leave with this. I realize we're getting short on time. I've gone a little long tonight. So thank you for your, your patience. But I want to close with this. We won't sing tonight. Sorry, Jake. But what I want to do is end on a song. And this song we have sung here. We actually sung it about three weeks ago. Uh, I think three, about three weeks ago, it is called The Love of God. And I encourage you to look it up. It is a beautiful, rich hymn, The Love of God. And what I want to do tonight, as we close our time in the, in the book of Zephaniah, I want to ask you this. I'm going to ask for you to close your eyes. And I'm going to say the first stanza and the refrain over you. I'm going to speak it over you. And I, my prayer is for this, for you to be reminded of the hope of Christ the hope that he gives to us through, our faith, through faith. And to be reminded, as Jonathan Edwards has prayed, that through this we'll stir within our hearts more affections for Christ. And the beauty of the hope that is laid before us here is not empty, but it's anchored in the eternal Son of God. And let these words be our prayer tonight as we close, but also for you to go back and to study the book of Zephaniah even in more detail um, and for you to just to see the rich grace and the mercy of our Lord. And that's how we're going to end tonight. So if you will, let's close our eyes, and I'll close us with these words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. The saints and the angels 
song. Father, apart from you, we are nothing. May the hope that your prophet Zephaniah, through your word, as we have just walked through tonight, be anchored deep within our hearts to have a great confidence, not within ourselves, but through Christ alone, where our hope is found. Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters in this room, no matter the season of life they are walking through, I pray that they will see the hope of Christ every single day of their lives. Lord, I pray that through this message of Zephaniah, that we will also take very serious our walk with you. With hope also comes a warning, as you have been very clear for us to see in Zephaniah. The warning is you take serious sin and that you will bring judgment upon us, discipline upon us. So Lord, I pray for the man or the woman in here tonight. Maybe they're struggling with sin. Maybe there's been something in their life that they feel their conscience being pulled left and the right of. Maybe it's been described through a deceitful tongue through pride, through fear. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray they will confess it now and to see their hope is in you and their help is in you. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.